Greetings, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Peter's Field Hospital, the official podcast for the website Where Peter Is. My name is Mike Lewis, and I'm your host. I'm the managing editor of wherepeteris.com. And today we are joined by David Lafferty and Paul Fahey. On May 7th, the former nuncio to the United States, Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano, published a letter that was signed by a number of cardinals, bishops, journalists, and other prominent Catholics that basically invoked uh, some end times apocalyptic conspiracy theory and uh, suggested that the Vatican was complicit in fostering a one-world government. David, uh, you're our conspiracy theory expert. Why don't you give us a little bit of background about what this letter says and uh, what inspired it? What what um, conspiracy theories, what type of mentality was behind the composing of this letter? Well, this letter is a, a whopper for sure. It's It touches on a lot of different themes that are really common to conspiracy theory in general, and but does it in a, uh, a very calculated way, I think. I mean, I'm assuming that it's Archbishop Vigano who wrote this. I, I, I don't know. It's, it seems like he is the actual author, but I should say it's a very carefully constructed piece of work. If you look at the website version of the appeal, there are certain words or phrases that are, are highlighted throughout the letter. These are the things that the author wanted to impress in people's minds. So these are just a few of the sections that are that are highlighted. One of them is world government beyond all control. We have interference by foreign powers, shady business interests, control over people, odious technological tyranny. So what we're getting is this. We're, we're, we're seeing these are the kind of buttons that uh, they're trying to, to push with this this letter. And I, and I think it would be instructive maybe to just, just look at a few of these and go through them just to see what's what's going on here. So the appeal starts off by saying that the facts have shown, it doesn't actually describe these facts or provide any, any links to the facts, that under the, the pretext of the COVID-19 epidemic, the inalienable rights of citizens have, have in many cases been violated and their fundamental freedoms, uh, including freedom of worship, expression and movement, have been disproportionately and unjustifiably restricted. Now, they say that this is happening even as, this is a quote, growing doubts emerge from several quarters about the actual contagiousness, danger and resistance of the virus. Many authoritative voices in the world of science and medicine confirm that the media's alarmism about COVID-19 appears to be absolutely unjustified. And I don't know if you've you've looked into this, but yeah, there are some voices out there uh, saying this. But Mike, I know you saw the, uh, you mentioned that you saw that pandemic video that it was being circulated. I, I, I watched that just the other day. And it takes about two seconds of searching on Google, looking these people up to to realize that these are not authoritative voices in the world of, of science and medicine who are making these kinds of claims. These are cherry-picked voices, often people with, I guess you would say, backgrounds that, that seem a little a little odd. They're people who are being amplified by conservative media, so not just Catholic media, but conservative media in general. And so they're immediate, like this letter is trying to kind of invoke those voices as a, a sort of 
support for this without, again, without actually, they're not citing anything here. They're not pointing to anything concrete that could back up these claims. And then they say the imposition of these illiberal measures is a disturbing prelude to the realization of a world government beyond all control. And I think this is a statement that shocked a lot of people, um, this idea that all of the signatories of this document seem to be buying in to this idea that we're headed towards. This is classic conspiracy theory idea that we're headed towards a world government, a new world order, a sort of tyrannical either liberalism or communism that will eventually take away all of our all of our freedoms. Yeah, I want to just jump in because what what you said about the pandemic movie, I just saw a tweet that Raymond Arroyo put up this afternoon, and it looks like he's quoting something authoritative. It says, a letter from the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons says hydroxychloroquine had 90% chance of helping COVID-19 sufferers. Now, that sounds pretty prestigious. The Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. Clearly, that must be an important organization. Well, you look up that organization and they have been behind climate change denial. They have been behind the anti-vaccine movement. This is a fringe organization that has taken on a very professional sounding name. So there's a lot of cleverness that's going on here. And people who, unlike you and me, don't think to Google these things, like who is this organization? This isn't this isn't the AMA. This isn't the American Medical Association. This is an alternate group that promotes pseudoscience. So they're trying to present something as authoritative that really isn't. And there are, there are a lot of these groups out there that use these, you know, very official sounding names and acronyms. And they try to recruit doctors, you know, other people with, you know, sort of prestigious sounding titles. And you really have to be careful. We, we can't be so naive anymore to just trust that just because a, a doctor on a YouTube video says it, that this doctor actually represents mainstream medical opinion. There's a lot of crazy doctors out there. There's, <laughs> um, there's a lot of crazy professors. There's a lot of crazy people with high sounding credentials or in some cases inflated credentials. That's part of the, the effort that goes on in trying to push this, this misinformation. And it's the same with news sites. There's a lot of news sites out there that, that, that sound like real news sites, you know, but they're not. They're, uh, especially well, <laughs> one that, uh, I saw just recently uh, the Epic Times. I don't know if you're familiar with them. They're a, a Chinese expatriate newspaper. They're actually basically run by Falun Gong, so they're they're opposed to the Chinese government. But they've become absolutely notorious for publishing misinformation, and they've gone into the sort of the world of of QAnon and conspiracy theory, and now coronavirus conspiracy theory. But again, they make it look very professional. They make it look like real journalism. And so we really have to be careful and, and, and check our sources. So it seems that the people who are, behind, who are behind this, if they actually believe this kind of stuff, they're falling for this wholeheartedly. I, I had a question for you, David. Yeah. When, when I was in, in college, uh, I was much more, much more politically conservative, um, culture work Catholic, read LifeSite News on a regular basis. And I definitely heard of one world government stuff. Most definitely a animosity towards the UN and stuff like that. 
But this isn't something, it's something that I'm seeing more of now, but not something I, I know much about. I remember hearing recently that it has ties to anti-Semitism. That may have been a, a piece that you wrote at some point, but I was wondering if you could share more, like what, what's kind of the history of this one world government conspiracy theory? So the most, the most notorious example of this sort of one world government idea came from a book that was published in the early 20th century called The Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion. And this was a book that was published in uh, Russia first. It was a uh, total forgery. Um, it, was, it was completely made up, or actually I think it was derived uh, from another from an earlier book that had nothing to do with Jewish, any kind of Jewish conspiracy. But it was basically, it was supposed to be the record of a meeting of sort of Jewish cabal that was that is trying to take over the world. And they are going to use the governments of the world and manipulate them in a certain way in order to create this sort of one world government. And, and one of the ways they'll do it is through finance, through high, you know, high finance, because, again, the idea was that, uh, you know, Jews control all the banks, they control world finance. Uh, and so they have, therefore, control over other control over the nations of the world. And this this book had a, a massive, massive impact, and it just spread like like wildfire. And again, I don't want to imply that anyone who brings up this sort of idea of a, a world world government or a new world order is necessarily anti anti Semitic. Like I don't think they they all are, but we can't ignore that that is part of the history of this idea. That is a lot of where it came from. Before that, you see the roots in Freemasonic conspiracy theory so and that that has more of a direct connection to catholicism because the church of course was very concerned about freemasonry and the influence of freemasonry and i, I think they had, they had valid concerns about it but the freemasonic conspiracy theory is is basically a gross exaggeration of that idea where you start to see freemasons as implanting themselves in governments all across the world working together against the church, against national sovereignty in order to create this one world religion and one world government. So it starts off with Freemasonry and then late, you know, 19th century and then into the early 20th century, it becomes, you no, know, it's actually the Jews. And, and that's even within Catholic conspiracy theory. We get this idea that Freemasonry is actually a Jewish creation. So the Freemasons are are basically the Jews, or it's people who are working for the Jews. And, and of course, it reaches its culmination in Nazi Germany, where they embrace that idea wholeheartedly. And I mean, that was, that's the, that was behind the decision-making of, of Germany, was this idea that the Jews were in control of both the capitalist governments of the West and the communist governments of the East, and they were all out to crush Germany. Uh, and they had to fight this apocalyptic war against, um, like a crusade. I mean, the, in, in 1941, the, when the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union, they called it Operation Barbarossa to intentionally to invoke this idea of a, of a holy crusade. You know, even just invoking the idea of a one world government that seems to come with a lot of baggage. Like me reading this, I would have been like, oh, like one world government. That's kind of crazy or whatever. But the context you just put it in, I mean, Bishop Strickland signed this. Uh, yeah. The for former head of the CDF, Colonel Mueller, he just signed this. That seems really nuts. 
I mean, that's one of the things that I think kind of jumped out at me. I think having grown up in reactionary Catholicism, where I mean, we we were discussing earlier today that I that I read the book AA ten twenty five that purports to as as a ten year old, it was just sitting on the bookshelf at home. A story that purports to be the secret diary of a, a Soviet infiltrator in the Catholic Church around the time of Vatican II, and and he had this secret plot to take down the church. And it's one of those things where in in my own life, I, I sort of have the same, I had the St. Paul experience, like when I grew up, I put away the childish things. And so I guess what's shocking to me is to see, yeah, the former nuncio to the United States, the um, the, the former head of the Congregation of the, of the Doctrine of the Faith, we've got two sitting ordinary bishops Bishop Strickland, as you mentioned, and then um, the Archbishop in Astana in Kazakhstan, and then and then Cardinal Sarah, who who obviously later revoked his signature, but gave positive affirmations towards it when he did that. Yeah, he didn't repudiate what it, what its contents were. He just didn't feel it was appropriate for someone in his office to sign it. What's interesting is Archbishop Vigano immediately uh, protested what Cardinal Sarah had to say about it and uh, said he had recorded their six minute and 25 second conversation and had a transcript of it. I guess this is this is the thing that's surprising me. These are people who are supposed to be taken seriously in the church. Athanasius Schneider, you know, is reputed reportedly this great theologian, even if he's only an auxiliary bishop. We've heard Cardinal Burke even though he didn't sign this particular petition, talk about Masonic plots or one world governments and one world religion. Not that you can read minds, David, but I know that you've been that you've been digging into these things. Is this something that that's been sitting dormant and has come to the fore? Or have these narratives won people over because maybe Pope Francis is so distressing to them? I mean, obviously there are all these theories about why Francis might not actually be Pope. And two of the signatories, Archbishop Langa and Bishop uh, René Gracida from uh, the Emeritus Bishop of Corpus Christi, are both openly deny that Francis is Pope. Another one, uh, Archbishop Negri uh, from Italy, uh, apparently was uh, let go from his position because he was overheard uh, expressing that he wished Pope Francis would die. I mean, part of me... I love Pope Benedict, but part of me wonders, like, what was he thinking when he put these people in these positions? And now we have this church where these, there, you know, all these characters are installed, and it seems that these ideas are growing, and people with real power, with real, real clout, with real money, with real standing in the church seem to be eating this stuff up. I know you've studied conspiracy theory. Like, please just tune me in to, to, to what exactly is going on and, and why a certain branch of the church has uh, headed in this direction. And on a positive note, do you think that the degree to which these characters, these well, these players have gone, the, the, the degree to which they have gone in this direction is starting to show to some people that maybe the resistance to Pope Francis wasn't a great idea. <laughs> or maybe this, maybe this wasn't a bandwagon that, or maybe this is a bandwagon that, sh- 
we should think again about whether or not we want to ride on it. I don't know. What are you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, to me, um, what I, what I've, I've been realizing is that it's, it's not just resistance to Pope Francis. I think that it's, this is all, all part of a larger narrative that's kind of sweeping into the church and, and Pope Francis is in some ways a victim of it. So when you look at the history of, of conspiracy theory and, and this sort of one world or new world order idea, one of the, like after, after, uh, Vatican II, you don't you don't get a lot of this in the Catholic Church, right? You don't. Um, there's the anti-communism, which sometimes comes up. You get you get that, and, and in some cases, some cases it's totally legitimate anti-communism. In some cases, it's an anti-communism that's kind of masquerading, uh, or, or it's, it's sorry, it's uh, like either an anti-Semitism or a sort of Freemasonic conspiracy masquerading as anti-communism. The New World Order conspiracy theory becomes popularized again, though, in the early '90s with. Pat Robertson, so from the evangelical uh, side of things, and he, he wrote a book shortly after the uh, invasion of, of Iraq, the, the first uh, Iraq war, and that was called just the New World Order. And he brought up this idea again. He invoked Freemasonic conspiracy theory. He actually borrowed ideas from, um, and this is well documented, that he, he lifted ideas from anti-Semitic conspiracy theorists like Eustace Mullins and um, Nesta Webster, so these kind of old school conspiracists, but put it in this new framework in which it was kind of situated within a sort of end times narrative. Um, and that's the other element that we see, I think, coming into this now is that you have this idea that the creation of the, the, the new world order is somehow, it's either the, you know, the reign of the Antichrist or it's, it's in some in some way signaling the the end times. And that idea grew very popular within evangelicalism and then but it's it sort of drifted into the Catholic Church as well. And is I, it, I see that sorry, yeah, go ahead. Is that tied in with the Fatima secrets as well, David? Yes. And so it's become yeah, tied in with the Fatima secrets, especially, you know, the people who who don't accept the, the official secrets as published by the Vatican, the ones who think that there's more to it and that sort of thing. And then it, it, it also becomes tied in with this idea of an impending apostasy within the church. So an infiltration of the church by either communists or Freemasons or whoever. And then, the, and this goes all the way up to the Pope, right? And that's, that was the basic idea behind Taylor Marshall's book, Infiltration, which has become very popular among certain Catholics, the idea that there was a Freemasonic plot that was launched in the 19th century, and now it has come to fruition, that it involved the gradual infiltration of the Catholic Church by Freemasons, by communists, and then now, finally, the papacy, and we have a pope who represents everything that Freemasonry wants to accomplish. So they're tying in Pope Francis with the new world order with this sort of world government. And in a way, I think, you know, Pope Francis has been very unfairly victimized here because we have, like, say, John Paul II. I mean, he was the kind of fringe traditionalists at the time said the same things about him, that, you know, that he was some kind of the, the kind of pope of the new world order, that sort of thing, you know, because of his efforts with uh, interreligious dialogue and, and, and all that sort of stuff. But that was confined to the fringes. That was the sort of little 
pamphlets and newspapers that were sent out through the mail and photocopied and that sort of thing, or like Fatima Crusader and those kind of publications. Now it's, and I think this has been fueled by social media, it's entered the mainstream. And it's this idea has entered through Taylor Marshall, through LifeSite News, through all these outlets. It's actually become part of the a discourse within mainstream church. And now it's actually a discourse within the hierarchy, as we see in this letter. Yeah, it's, I mean, it came through Archbishop Figano, but yeah, I mean, I, re- I recall at least two or three uh, sitting US, U.S. bishops at the time when Vigano's first letter came out calling for the Pope to resign. At least two or three U.S. bishops gave him a public character reference. Well, I think uh, it was more yeah. like, I think it was might have been like 12 or 13 or, or, that many. As, high, or as high as 20. Um, some people didn't necessarily take a, a stance, but they said, something to the effect they would give a character reference and say it's something that we should look into yeah um, without without explicitly saying i now bishop strickland i believe explicitly said he found the charges credible someone like archbishop chapu said something more vague about how great and and how much he respected and enjoyed working with vigano and how he definitely didn't think he was bad or or definitely thought that it was worth looking into so this kind of all brings to light when that first Vigano letter came out, we're pushing almost two years ago now, uh, Pedro Gabriel, he wrote an article, I believe it was him. They took something from the early 90s from Bergoglio, writing on some of St. Ignatius's writing. And there was something in there in, in this essay about silence. And it was a reflection on Christ during his passion, during his uh, persecution before the religious leaders and before Pilate, and how Christ's silence and I forget the exact wording, but it was something like where Christ's silence drew out and unmasked the bad spirits going on at play, right? The bad spirits unmasked themselves. And at the time, Pedro put together, right, because everyone was like, why isn't the Pope responding to Vigano? Why isn't he taking this seriously? Everyone wants to know. And Pedro was essentially like, maybe he's just waiting to see what unmasks. And we look now almost two years later. And Archbishop Vigano is putting out, I mean, crazy stuff. And uh, recently, too, you know, he was talking about that third, um, that third Fatima secret, obviously denying what both the visionaries and the church has said that the secret's done. We've been through this already. Does he believe in like what a fake Lu- uh, Lucia, right? You know, <laughs> I don't know. But it seems like, and not, not that I believe Pope Francis plays three-dimensional chess or anything, but. There seemed to be a real prudence and wisdom where either he knew or he sensed maybe Vigano's kind of nuts and maybe he's going to dig his own grave here or something. But at the very least, it seems like what I perceived at the time almost two years ago was like, this is this is kind of crazy. And this feels like somebody who doesn't seem who seems to either have an agenda or or something that seems to be unmasked right now. Right. How could anyone take Vigano seriously at this point? The unmasking has been just incredibly dramatic. It's incredible to see the difference where in in the original, you know, Vigano accusation that came out in 2018. I mean, you could, at the time, I thought that he sounds, he sounds very paranoid. He sounds like he's maybe making accusations based on his own presuppositions and not on, not on evidence. And so you, you could tell that there was, something off with him but 
just how off he was as only it's taken time for that to actually show itself. Here's, here's one of the problems though, as I see it, um, obviously growing up in, in this, uh, reactionary Catholic world, just, just having some exposure, my, like my grandfather was very anti-Vatican too. And, Loved Malachi Martin. I mentioned the novel that I read. I I had a sense that there were Freemasons in the church. I feared a future pope that might be a heretic. But as I grew, I guess what I what I started to accept was that these were fringe views. And when I learned about things like like I knew these views were not mainstream. I I started to realize that that they were based in myth, legend, not facts, not history. But then I start, I think what I've begun to wonder is what kind of success would Lefebvre have had had social media existed in the 70s? How would Vatican II have gone down if Ed Penton and, and Diane Montagna, Montagna were reporting on it every single day? I mean, it, the thing is, it's that was the beginning of mass communication, but it's nothing like today. It's nothing like the masses that that are really disrupting things. Poor Bishop Sticka in um, Knoxville, Tennessee. He he put in a, a you know he's reopening public masses, and he talked about how his poor switchboard operator, because he's he set out he set forth guidelines that mandate communion in the hand. A lot of these websites, including Church Militant, have led people to bombard his poor switchboard operator, whose whose husband apparently just died with foul language and abusive language, and really rallied the troops against him. Father Z has blogged against him. This is the the bishop of a small diocese in Tennessee. Forty years ago, people weren't going to know what was happening in a small diocese in Tennessee. And now it's national news and people from all over the world are reading this stuff and are demonizing this poor bishop who not a canon lawyer. I don't know how how that plays out in the end. He's clearly looking for the safety of his people. He's not trying to impose modernist heresy on them. He's a very friendly bishop to, to the Latin mass. But that doesn't seem to matter because he's been made. Uh, a villain. And another thing that, that we're starting to notice is that in this age of social media, and this is something that, that maybe we can kind of switch to, is a lot of these people that we thought were, were balanced and faithful leaders in, in the Catholic community, like Scott Hahn, have given ringing endorsements of Archbishop Vigano and Cardinal Burke and Athanasius Schneider apologists like like Patrick Coffin and Steve Ray, people who, who've influenced my faith, people who've in, who influence a lot of Catholics of goodwill have totally gone in this conspiracy theory, anti-Francis direction. And it's as if they're hearing these theories for the first time, whereas I got over them 10 years ago. I guess I guess people are susceptible to them when they hear them, and hopefully it's something they grow out of. But uh you know, while Pope Francis is being silent, they're on the local level, on the ground, in the parishes, in the seminaries, it seemed, at least in the U.S., it seems that they're winning or they're, they're really winning converts to their perspective. I don't, I, I don't know, Paul, if you have any, any specific thoughts on anything I just said. 
I mean, are, are, are you seeing what I'm seeing? Yeah, I mean, I've seen, I think, maybe not immediately after Pope Francis's election. For me, it, it was really the, the 2016 presidential election where I saw Catholic thinkers, apologists, writers diverge from, from the church's teaching. Like I remember listening to Catholic radio and hearing them talk about Catholic guides for voting that said things very different than what the USCCB voting guide was saying. And I was like, this is like, this isn't right. I expect NPR to get church teaching wrong. I don't expect Catholic radio to get church teaching wrong. But, but most recently, it was a few weeks ago, it was the end of April, I believe. So it was before this, this public letter, most recent public letter from Archbishop Vigano came out. But Scott Hahn was on uh, the John Henry Weston podcast from LifeSite News. And he was referring to Archbishop Vigano, Cardinal Burke, and, and Bishop Athanasius Schneider. He said something like, these are, these are the most courageous pastors in the church right now. And I hear that, and I'm like, Scott Hahn? I saw Scott Hahn in high school. He came to a tiny town of about 12 miles from my house when I was in high school up in, up in mid-Michigan. And the church was packed. Yeah, that's when I was first exposed to Scott Hahn. And I've been to at least one or two more uh, of his talks live. I've read a ton of his books. I've passed out a ton of his books. I'm the director of religious ed at a, at a parish in a small town. I've recommended Scott Hahn and passed out his stuff, his talks. A ton. I use all his stuff. And now here he is, like three weeks ago, saying that Archbishop Vigano is the most, one of the three most courageous pastors in the church. And yeah, I don't know. It's like, how do I handle that? How do I handle that, especially when this is just a few weeks after Pope Francis's Urbi et Orbi address, where I would say, I mean, for myself, definitely, and for many Catholics, that I've talked to, like regular Catholics, they saw this and they're like, he's the pastor of the world right now. Pope Francis is is really stepping out and taking charge and with um his the Pope's Pope's daily masses that were live streamed that unfortunately recently ended. He was the world's pastor, I think, for many Catholics. And here's Scott Hahn of all people saying, No, 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 it's not Pope Francis. He's not on my he's not on my top three. But Archbishop Vigano is who's peddling Fatima conspiracy theories and one world government conspiracy theories. I don't know. It's, it's really hard to reconcile that because I like a lot of Scott Hahn's books and theology. I think he makes a lot of, he makes a lot of our faith compelling and beautiful to some extent. It's, it's really frustrating and really, it's really discouraging. Maybe it's the Lord peeling back more and more of the clericalism that I had, not just towards clerics, but, anybody who presented themselves as an authority in the church. I think when I was younger, especially, I would give them a kind of, I don't know, they were more holy or they they knew what they were talking about just because they wrote books on the Catholic faith. I don't believe that anymore. Any any of this, any of this clericalism pretense, I think, is gone. I'm, I'm maybe now more surprised, unfortunately, when some of these Catholic writers and apologists who I used to read come out in support of the Pope, then I'm surprised when they come out saying these crazy things. It's gotten to the point where a lot of these people that that we respect, and, and someone like Scott Hahn, I mean, my understanding is he's a supernumerary for, for Opus Dei. And Opus Dei, one of their 
one of their the main parts of their spirituality, one of the main parts of the of their view is is support of the Pope. And I know in Europe, their leadership has been very supportive of Pope Francis. I know that Jack Valero, who started um, who started uh, Catholic Voices in in England with Austin Ivory, is very supportive of the Pope. He's a he's a celibate numerary. I guess that's sort of the double whammy. Now, Scott Hahn has been very careful not to criticize Pope Francis by name. But when you list those three bishops as your most courageous pastors in the church, I'm sorry, but that's not a dog whistle. That's a that's a bullhorn. Unless you're completely clueless about what's going on in the church, those are not the three bishops that you pick as as the bishops to listen to and admire. David, do you have do you have any more thoughts on on how the leadership has been overtaken and or how these folk heroes for lack of a better word have have fallen under this spell? Obviously one of the things we do at at where Peter is is we're essentially trying to fill in the void that they've left. We're trying to transmit this papal magisterial theological teaching to uh in a popular to a popular audience to a to a lay non-theological audience. And unfortunately, it doesn't seem that that any of these leaders are, are paying attention to Pope Francis's side of the story, and they're buying those of his detractors and critics. Well, I, yeah, I do have some thoughts on that. And, and one of them is that, I mean, this idea of emphasizing the authority of the Pope, this has been such an integral part of you know, what you'd call conservative Catholicism for, for a long time. And it goes back to um, Humanae Vitae, where you had um, on the part of, you know, more liberal Catholics, a sort of de-emphasis uh, on the magisterium and the authority of the Pope and a, an emphasis on conscience and that sort of thing. And then the reaction among conservative Catholics was to now emphasize the, the authority of the Pope. And that really continued on for a long time until we get to, to Pope Francis. And, and what we're seeing, I think, is that that emphasis on papal authority in many cases was opportunistic. It was something that they put forward and that they said was an essential part of the face because that served their political interests, right? It served their purpose of fighting against and I'm talking about the, the kind of North American context here, but, you know, fighting against liberalism and the sexual revolution and, and, and all of that. Then when you get someone like Pope Francis, who leans in a different direction, you know, doesn't speak in a, in a way that emphasizes a kind of moral rigorism, suddenly they're saying, no, we don't actually have to pay attention to the Pope anymore. And, and I think, too, if we're talking about the, the political influence of all this, I, I don't think we can ignore the role of of Trump and the um, uh, and the, the sort of political revolution that's gone on since around 2015, 2016. And and I'm saying this as someone who's not a um, uh, now I'm 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 watching all the Trump stuff from Canada, but I, I typically have been you know very conservative leaning in, in politics. And when when Trump got elected, I was actually, you know, cheering him on a little bit. And because I did think I, I kind of agreed with, with some people at the time that, you know, there was a sort of liberal orthodoxy. 
that was very suffocating. And I could feel that in, in Canada, and I could feel that coming from the U.S. as well under, under Obama. And Trump was a way to kind of smash that and, and sort of mess up the system a little bit so that we could have a, a new, new paradigm. But I kind of came to my senses after a little while when I realized that this new revolution was, was leading people um, down some really strange, strange roads. And they can't give up on this stuff now. They've gone so deep into it. But I see that influence. A lot of the, the stuff that we see, a lot of the, the really harsh criticism of Pope Francis started around the time of the 2016 American election. And it's only become more intense since then. And a lot of the people who are involved in this are either from the United States or have some kind of relationship with the United States, like Archbishop Vigano, right? Or they're maybe just people who are kind of tuned into the Catholic media world that, that's sort of centered in the in the United States. Alternatively, they've been recruited to become part of it, like Bishop Athanasius Schneider. What is an auxiliary bishop from Kazakhstan doing? Why does a single American know his name, let alone why does he get speaking engagements? Why, why is he interviewed? Why is he selling books? Why is he, why is he speaking at major conferences? It, it's because he's been championed by certain groups of people who happen, uh, and this may not be the motivation, but they happen to have the money to bring him in. And, and so he's, he's been brought in to help set up an alternative magisterium. And, and I mean, and, and similar, I mean, a lot of these guys, like I mentioned, only, a, only two of them are active ordinaries. The ones who signed this petition, for example, Burke doesn't have a job. Mueller doesn't have a job. Bishop Grisida in Texas is 96 years old, apparently completely lucid, you know, and, and in good health. But he 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 doesn't have a full time job yet. They're being propped up by certain organizations. Yeah. And it's uh, I mean, a lot of these people, too, feel that they've been sort of sidelined or slighted by Pope Francis. Right. So. I mean, I hate to. I don't think it's entirely based in resentment, but I, I think that that plays a, some role in it. I mean, you start to see if you've been kind of if you're feeling alienated from the hierarchy, then you start to see them as the elites. Then you start to associate them with global elites. Then you start to develop this conspiratorial worldview where it's you, the underdog, against these global elites who are trying to control you, trying to keep you down, stifle your voice, and everything. But really, it's it's such a small world of these guys. Like the, if you, if you hear a lot of these sort of anti-Francis people talk, they're always just citing the same people. It's always Burke and Vigano, Schneider, Mueller, Seurat, Strickland is now you know someone who a lot of people will cite, and and they've almost become the church for some people now. So their their world has shrunk. It's a very it's a very small Catholic world in that sort of anti-Francis faction, which is maybe what they want. But yeah, it's it's leading, it's it's creating a sort of hothouse atmosphere <laughs> where a lot of these crazy ideas can flourish. But it's a hothouse atmosphere with a very large microphone, at least in the United yes. States. Yeah. Which, which for me, I mean, I mean, my biggest concern is Catholics on, on the ground, right? That's my job working with regular Catholics who are just coming to mass on Sunday, who love the Lord and who pay zero attention to church politics whatsoever. What really frustrates me is when this anti-Pope Francis sentiment is now affecting their spirituality. 
And it's only because this hot house has a large microphone where Scott Hahn may not be doing it directly. But I know Steve Ray is. He was on uh, El Cresta's show a couple months ago, Ave Maria Radio, out of Ann Arbor, Michigan here. And he was talking about papal authority because he, he just wrote a book on, on papal authority. And he got it absolutely wrong. Uh, he talked about how when the Pope doesn't speak infallibly, well, we got to respect him, but, you know, he could be wrong. And it's like, that's not what Lumen Gentium 25 says. Just a few days ago, he was on, uh, again, he was on John Henry Weston's Lifestyle News podcast to talk about papal authority, because that's what his new book is about. And you know, I, think it, I think at one point he says, you know, like when, what he communicates is only when the Pope speaks infallibly do we really got to obey him. I mean, he even said, now he didn't say that directly, right? But that's definitely what he's communicating. I mean, he even said we don't really have to listen to the Pope when he talks about immigration. And I'm like, that's straight up a moral issue. How does that that not fall under faith and morals, right? But then when he starts talking about the parameters of papal infallibility, he starts making stuff up. He starts talking about how, like, the Pope today can't ever say anything different than his predecessors. And I'm like, where's that in any of these church documents? That's not there. But he's he's someone who's on Catholic radio all the time. He's someone who who, who publishes tons of books and tons of lighthouse CDs in the backs of parishes all the time. And his material I use in my own junior high the religion classes that I teach at my parish. So this hothouse has a very large microphone. And unfortunately, not just to people who care about church politics, but to regular Catholics. You know, if I could add something to that, um, it, it, what's, what's interesting is that the way I see papal infallibility as it was defined, you know, the first Vatican Council, one of the reasons for this explicit definition of it was that you know, in the 19th century, we're entering into this world where you can have these sort of <laughs> hot houses of ideas with very big microphones. Even at the time, there were huge numbers of daily newspapers just churning out stuff every day, like from all kinds of political opinions and all kinds of religious opinions. You know, it was an incredibly confusing time. In some ways, you know, similar to, to, to what we're in today, it's just everything's just faster. Um, but we needed to explicitly recognize the authority of the Pope so that the Pope could be a beacon. You know, the Pope could be the, the, the final word when it comes to the interpretation of Catholic tradition. The source of unity for the church. The source of unity, yeah. And, and to avoid this kind of intense fragmentation that would happen if you lost that centralized authority. So it was, it was a reaction to exactly the kind of world we're in now, like very globalized, very, um, you know, with a lot of mass, mass communications. And to reject that now could be just absolutely disastrous because, you know, it can lead to just an incredible fragmentation of the church, which we're, we're already, already seeing. Well, and one of the things that a lot of Pope Francis's critics will, will point to where they'll try to argue is that all Vatican I had to say was about infallibility. The only thing that they talk about from it are ex cathedra infallible definitions, whereas they ignore the entire part on papal supremacy and papal primacy. Obviously, since ex cathedra has only been invoked once in 1950, it's not necessarily the most applicable teaching 
from that council. People talk about the Pope's uh, jurisdiction being universal, supreme, immediate, and he can exercise it unhindered, which is also spelled out in the Vatican I documents, and that his disciplinary decisions can be enacted immediately. And then you go from there, all the subsequent teachings on papal primacy, and, and these are repeated by Pius IX, uh, spoke about it in detail. I know that Leo Thirteenth wrote about how the, the Pope is the person who decides theological disputes. Basically, once Rome has spoken, yeah, there can be two sides on Amoris Laetitia. There can be two sides on the death penalty. There can be two sides on women's ordination. But once the Pope puts his foot down, his decision, even if he doesn't invoke ex cathedra, even if he's not invoking ordinary and universal magisterium, it's authoritative. And this was developed in Vatican II. Talk about other popes who've written extensively on it, Pius X, Pius XII, Paul VI, definitely. John Paul II, I'm going through this series of 10 audiences where he essentially uh, describes papal primacy as, as we understand it. I mean, people accuse us of being ultramontane. Compared to John Paul II, I think we're pretty tame. I, I think Stephen Walford is tame compared to John Paul II. But these are accusations that get thrown at us. Benedict XVI, the speech that he gave, the speeches that he gave prior to his election at John Paul II's funeral and his and right prior to his his resignation, pledging absolute obedience to his successor. The closing speech at the end of the Synod on the family that Pope Francis gave about how the Synod operates with and under Peter and the Holy Spirit guarantees its fidelity to the truth. None of this matters to, to, to Pope Francis's critics. I mean, that's one of the things. The entire, there's this debate over chapter eight of Amoris Laetitia, but specifically footnote 351. All of chapter eight is the moral and pastoral and doctrinal justification for that footnote. And People just don't accept the argument. When when the the new um, revision to the teaching on the death penalty was released, it was released along with a letter from the CDF that justified the change. And yet that didn't matter. That didn't have any authority. But here's the thing. There are two sides to the issue. And yeah, let's debate the issue before it's decided. Let's bring all voices to the table. Let's discuss it. Okay, you've got an argument. They've got an argument. The Pope decides he agrees with this argument. You can't say that that's not the teaching of the church. And, and that's just kind of what I've, what I've been seeing. And it just doesn't make any sense to me how, how these teachings about the papacy are there in black and white. We're not saying that the Pope is automatically a saint, although I believe Pope Francis is, is a very saintly man, for, especially for putting up with what he puts up with. But I mean, he, he has a strong prayer life. He's, he visits his, his confessor. He spends a lot of time in front of the Blessed Sacrament. He prays the rosary every day. He does his breviary. I mean, I, I think he trusts a lot in the Holy Spirit which can lead to some what people call gaffes or mistakes. I think he doesn't let that sort of thing trouble him. But popes can make prudential errors. They can make decisions. Uh, the, the CDF document on the vocation of the theologian, Donum Veritatis, 
speaks about how certain teachings of the magisterium can have deficiencies, doesn't admit of errors. And when teachings are infallible, I think they're definitely reformable. But the duties of the laity on these teachings, it says that we're bound to give religious assent of intellect and will according to the manifest mind and will of the Pope. And to me, I am seeing a lot of degrees of rejection of this, whether it's subtle or whether in the case of Amoris Laetitia, they'll say, well, there could be uh, an orthodox way to read this teaching. Well, the Buenos Aires directives are manifest. They reflect his mind and will. And if your reading contradicts what the Pope intended to teach, that's really looking for a loophole. Others uh, seem to just dismiss his teachings out of hand. And, and that seems to be the case with Steve Ray, as you mentioned. Uh, he seems to find Pope Francis's teachings problematic altogether and worthy of respect, but not worthy of assent. And it's sad for somebody who claims to be an expert on papal primacy and has written supposedly two books about it that he has such a limited, narrow, and frankly, un-Catholic view of, of that teaching. One of the reasons why it's it's so frustrating when you hear this stuff from guys like, you know, Steve Ray or, or whoever, is that these are the very, yeah, like you said, the very same people who, who emphasized papal primacy for so long, who wrote about it, who propagandized on behalf of it, right? Um, and now it's, it's dropped, like it's something that doesn't really matter. And they've kind of reverted to this idea that it's, it's almost like an either or kind of thing, like either something is infallible, or, you know, ex cathedra, or it's nothing, or it, do, it doesn't mean anything at all. But that's the thing, Catholic teaching, there's a lot of intricacies and sort of gray areas. When you're looking at magisterial authority, that's actually one of them. There's, I mean, there are infallible teachings, right? Or there, there is sort of papal infallibility, but then there are also other levels of authority to which, yeah, we owe religious assent. And we can't, we can't ignore that. It's, it doesn't mean that it, you're free to, to, to pick and choose. And, you know, at the same time, it's not that there's no room for people disagreeing with the Pope or, or questioning the Pope's judgment. I mean, people have done that, for Catholics have done that for a long time. But it's one thing to say, I don't think that this should be the teaching of the Church. And then it's another thing to say, this is not the teaching of the Church. And that's what we're seeing much, much more of, is people trying to usurp magisterial authority to kind of speak on behalf of the magisterium in opposition to the Pope. And that's, I think, that's the where you're, you're really entering into that, that realm of potential schism. So, David, you, you've taken us from conspiracy theory to schism. I don't know, Paul, if you want to put a punctuation mark on that point or, or, or what you had to say. Whether intentionally or not, it's incredibly deceitful. When you have, when you have Catholic authorities, especially, and not to keep picking on Steve Ray, but someone who makes the claim of being an authority on papal authority, who then essentially says implies, well, you really only have to obey the Pope when he speaks infallibly. That's deceitful. And the problem is, is that's not deceitful to educated Catholics. That's, that's deceitful to the people who trust Steve Ray to be the authority that he says he is. It's something that I noticed right away once I started actually doing research on 
the controversy surrounding Amoris Laetitia chapter 8 was how so many of Pope Francis's critics who opposed that teaching were using the exact same rhetoric and argumentation that Catholics who opposed Humanae Vitae were using. I mean, I can't, I mean, I've, I've done a lot of apologetics for Humanae Vitae in my day, and I've heard many, many people say, well, it, it wasn't an infallible teaching, so therefore I'm free to somehow dismiss it. I can't tell you how many times I've responded to that. And it's the exact same argument being made for Pope Francis's teaching, whether it's a Morris Laetitia, whether it's a death penalty, whether it's immigration, whether it's climate change. It's the same thing. David, do you have any closing thoughts for us? Well, I agree with Paul that, that what makes this really especially insidious is that it's it's getting down into the, the pews and that's like into the ordinary Catholics. And I wouldn't care if, if it was just a bunch of nerds arguing on Twitter, <laughs> you know, which it sometimes is. And I'm one of those nerds. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't care so much because that's, you know, it's just kind of abstract debate. But there are a lot of people who are plugged in to the world of Church Militant or the world of LifeSite News or Taylor Marshall, whoever, or some of these um, more mainstream apologists who are now starting to head in that direction. And they're the people who I think, the way I see where Peter is, they're the people who we're trying to reach because it's so easy in this media environment to close yourself off and only, I mean, we've seen this so many times now with, the, you know, the rise of all sorts of, you know, conspiracy theories, crazy ideas fueled by social media. People are only getting information from certain sources. I mean, I, I really don't blame some of these people. If that's the only information they're getting, it probably sounds pretty believable to them. But I think that where Peter is, is going to, the mission really is, is to help bring this broader perspective in to say that, you know, this, this is not an accurate representation of the Francis papacy. Um, this is not an accurate representation of the per of the church. The situation is actually much more complicated and much, much more nuanced than a lot of these pundits and a lot of these apologists are going to lead you to believe. We see it happening in the pews, in Bible studies, in parish groups, within the pro-life movement. And it's not based on people getting accurate information. People are being misled. And if they were given an accurate portrayal of Pope Francis, if they were given an accurate view of Catholic social teaching about a consistent ethic of life, I think the world and the church would be much better places. I think that's the part that gets me really upset and that and the word that comes to mind is unjust. The Holy Spirit has given us Pope Francis for this time in the church, not just for the theologians and the bishops, but for regular Catholics. And we're missing that. Regular Catholics are being robbed of that because of these people with large microphones and their and their agendas. And when I read Pope Francis, my own relationship with the Lord has changed so much in a positive way because of Pope Francis. And I can't freely share that with other Catholics without first having to, like, you know, fight this battle up a mountain to get them to even trust him in the first place. That's profoundly unjust. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Peter's Field Hospital. On behalf of David Lafferty and Paul Fahey, I'm Mike Lewis. Thank you for listening. And until next time, take care. <laughs>